Welcome back to the Apostles Mailbox, where today we're going to look at a passage that I once preached a bad sermon on. All right, so uh, as we study through the book of John, we've now made our way to chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be talking about the passage where the miracle of the turning water into wine at Cana is recounted. And as I mentioned, I once preached a bad sermon on it. What do I mean by bad sermon? Well, I don't mean that I preach something terribly heretical, uh, but what I do mean is that uh, as, I, as I went back to my notes for this, uh, that was, uh, it was about eight years ago, I found that I had preached a sermon on this passage around Christmas time. Um, and as part of that uh, message, I really honed in on this idea of work and vocation and calling. And uh, it was something that at the time I had been sort of studying and being challenged by and doing some reading on and uh, and, and I thought was important. And, and we did a, a sermon series on this same sort of general topic uh, early of the next year. And uh, because of that, I think I took a bunch of ideas and I sort of imported them in on top of the text, which you shouldn't do. Uh, but it is notoriously difficult for us not to do that. Because as we are thinking, as we're processing things in our, in our heads, the way our brains are wired, sort of everything can kind of uh, influence and touch everything else. And all of these connections are made in our minds. And, and we sometimes take something that's going on over here, and then we read something in the text that sort of remind us of it, and then we make our own connection to it, and then we assume that was in the text to begin with. Uh, whereas somebody else who wasn't working with those same things maybe would read the text a thousand times uh, and not see that. Uh, we've done it, not so much because it was in the text, but because it was already in our heads. And so as we read today's passage, uh, we're, I'm going to share with you some, some sort of history of what might have been in the first century audience in their heads as they read this, uh, some of their expectations that they would have brought with them uh, in an attempt to understand, like, what is John trying to get across as he recounts this, or what is Jesus trying to get across uh, as we read this, um, if anything. So I'll explain that comment in a little bit. So we're going to read the text. It's John chapter 2, uh, and I've got the ESV up as usual. And so we read that on the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Uh, Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples, and when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. Now when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. But when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. 
So as I told you, I, I wanted to sort of fill in some of the, the contextual ideas from this time so that you can understand or see this passage a little bit more uh, as John's original audience would have understood it. Because again, as we read scripture, we remember that it wasn't written to us. It was for us, but it wasn't, it was, it wasn't written with a 21st century American audience in mind. Okay, so uh, one of the first things that we'll see here is there's a, there's a time stamp here. We're told on the third day. Now, the third day was just a sort of a, a way of saying the day after tomorrow. So like today would be the first day, tomorrow would be the second day, and the third day would be the day after tomorrow. And so, uh, on the third day would be two days after something else happened, presumably. Now, when we look back to what has just been recorded in John, Jesus has called some of the early disciples to him, and uh, they, are, they have sort of uh, made this profession of belief about him. Uh, Nathaniel has said that, uh, that Jesus is the Son of God and the King of Israel. It's a pretty big statement. Okay, and we'll, we'll note, if you were to fast forward to John 21, there is a, a statement about Nathaniel of Cana uh, in uh, being one of Jesus' disciples. And so there's a good likelihood that uh, that same Nathaniel, this disciple who's just been called, was from the town of Cana, uh, where Jesus is headed, where this miracle happens. Okay, and so... Jesus goes there with his disciples. He, he may or may not have 12 by this point. We're not sure. Uh, we've only been told specifically by John about a, a handful of them that, are, that seem to be following him at this point. And we know uh, that the mother of Jesus was there as well. Okay, so the mother of Jesus, who we are not given her name Mary, interestingly enough, the mother of Jesus uh, signifies probably to us that her significance is her connection to Jesus, right? If, if Mary had never given birth to Jesus, of course, we would probably wouldn't know anything about her, uh, but we know of her because she was Jesus' mom. Uh, so we're told that, that Jesus' mom is at this wedding, and Jesus is invited there with his disciples, and disciples would have been expected to basically stick around with their teacher uh, wherever he went, and uh, they're at this party, and the wine runs out. And we and we think like, oh well, and just I don't know, send somebody to the store and pick up some more. Um, but the 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 problem with this is that in those days, a, a Jewish wedding would sometimes the feasting might stretch on for an entire week. And the bridegroom and his parents were expected to to basically provide hospitality to provide for the whole thing. And if that ran, if they ran out, if they didn't have enough provisions for the to to provide for this whole celebration, uh, it was even possible, according to uh, Carson's commentary on this, uh, it was even possible for them to be subject to to uh, legal liability uh, for for not providing enough, and it would have been a terrible, terrible, uh, shameful thing for the the groom's uh, wedding to. To run out, and so uh, in a culture where shame and pride were and, and honor were very very significant, were very weighty, uh, they they your your whole identity was sort of wrapped up in these things. This would have been a really traumatic, terrible thing to happen to run out of wine at your wedding, and so Jesus uh, Jesus' mom just looks at him and says. They have no wine. And you have this strange uh, response 
uh, from Jesus, uh, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. In the Greek, the phrase is really like, uh, what is this with what is what does this have to do with us? What is this between you and me? It was a way of of if of sort of rebuking somebody for trying to to blame you for something that that wasn't your responsibility. And 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 Jesus looks at at his mom, and this isn't a term of disrespect like it would be like if I said to my mom, "Woman, what are you talking about?" Right? Uh, this wouldn't have been taken as a sign of of disrespect for Jesus. Um, but he does say, okay, woman, th this really isn't our thing. My hour has not yet come. And so what Jesus already clearly knows is that he has a job to do. There is a, there is a timeline for God's stuff to be worked out. And that this fixing this problem uh, does not fit into his timeline, right? So this is not the time, Jesus says, for him to be sort of put on a public stage uh, by doing signs, I think. Um, and, and, and he just clearly says, like, the, the implication is, if I am to intervene here, it's going to be out of the order which has been intended for me. And here's the fascinating thing, right? So Jesus says, uh, woman, this isn't my responsibility. It's not your responsibility. And the time isn't right for me to be making a show of any, anything. And his mom just sort of ignores him uh, and looks to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. Uh, now, I really, really appreciate something that's going on here, which I hadn't seen until I was reading today. So one commentator pointed out, he said, this is the only place in Scripture where we have a command given by Mary that is recorded. And what does Mary say? Do whatever he tells you. And if you take this command and you apply it to your own life, it actually works. Right? Jesus repeatedly says, the ones who love me will do what I command. Right? He says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? And so the, the exhortation of the New Testament is that Jesus is Lord, and Lord is one to be obeyed. One who, when he speaks and he commands, you do what he says. And so Mary says, she looks at, at these servants, and she says, do whatever he tells you. And that command still applies to every believer today. Do what he tells you. Okay, so that's a little bit of a sidebar. That's already jumping ahead into trying to apply this to ourselves. Uh, but I just couldn't resist as we, as we talked about it. Now, John, as he's telling this, he, he points us... Uh, he points out to us there's six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, and they're large. They each hold 20 or somewhere around 20 or 30 gallons. So uh, six times 20 gallons would be 120 gallons. Six times uh, 30 gallons would be 180 gallons. So this is a massive amount of volume here. And when Jesus tells the servants to fill the jars with water, John tells us that they fill them up to the brim. Now this is this is important for us, I think, uh, to underscore the miraculous nature of what's going on here. Okay, so uh, we, we, we need to understand how much capacity there is. Uh, there is some talk about Old Covenant and New, which I'll get to in a minute, 
but we, there's there's this need to know that there's this massive volume of water that's filled up. And then the, the way that is used to describe how these servants filled these things is it says they're filled to the brim. So this was a way of talking about filling something up that, that uh, indicated that there was just like we would, it was to the brim, right? So if you if you fill a cup with water to drink it, you don't pour water all the way up to the brim because you'll spill it all over, right? You there's a there's a point that's full that still has room at the top, and then there's a point that's to the brim, which is like if you if you jostle it, something's going to come out. And we're told that these servants fill the water to the brim, and why is that important? Well, it's important because in those days. Uh, with water not typically always being sanitary, a very good way to keep your water from getting you sick, if it had stuff growing in it, uh, was to mix it with alcohol, and the alcohol would kill the germs in it. And so uh, the, the Jews would drink wine and basically all their water. <laughs> and they didn't drink wine in the same way that you or I would have a glass of wine, because part of the point of drinking the wine uh, wasn't just for joy, but it was also for health. And so if you wanted to have a big glass of water, you could put some wine in it to kill the germs and make it safe to drink. You weren't drinking it for the wine, you were drinking it for the water, and you were using the wine to disinfect it, if you will. And so the Jews then would dilute their wine typically uh, between uh, one parts in three all the way down to maybe one part in ten. Uh, and so uh, the wine then wasn't typically as intoxicating as what we would drink today. Now, of course, if you drank enough of it, uh, then you could indeed get intoxicated by it. Um, but typically, they drank their wine diluted. So let's imagine in our head then that you've got six, uh, six big jugs of water, and you fill them up full nine-tenths of the way, right? And then somebody comes and pours in one-tenth of that, a couple gallons of wine on top, then voila, you have wine to drink, right? But it's, it, the, the, you, in such a case, you wouldn't say the water was turned into wine. Uh, the water was just added, and then the wine was put into the water. And that wouldn't be miraculous, right? And so if we just said, like, and then they filled up the the water jars, and then they drew some wine out of them, theoretically, somebody could come along and say, well, yeah, so they just put a bunch of water there, and then they, then they threw the wine in top. Uh, but if the water jars are filled all the way to the brim with water, there's no way to put wine in there uh, to get the diluted wine that they would have drank because it was already full of water. Okay, so we're told that they're, they're filled up to the brim. There's no room to put any wine in to make the blend they would have drank. It was just pure water. So then when they draw out of those water jars and they bring it to the, to the guy who's in charge of the, the food and drink, and he tastes it, and then he says, wow, this is good wine, uh, we know that it's wine that wasn't wine before, it was water, and now it's wine. Uh, and in fact, there's a way that he talks about this that is important as well. Okay, so then furthermore, we're told that uh, the the guy in charge, he makes this remark, he says to the, to the groom, hey, look, <laughs> everybody, they serve the good wine first, because that's when people aren't inebriated at all, and they can really appreciate the good wine. But after maybe a couple of days of partying, people are starting to get a little 
there's there's a little more of the influence. The wine is creeping up on people, and if you throw the the worst wine out, uh, they're not going to recognize it quite so much because uh, in their mind they'll already have this memory of this really good wine that that started off the party, right? And so he says, after everyone's had enough wine, then that's when you bring out the junk. But what what you've kept is you've kept the real good stuff for last. Okay, so there's some there's some information I think that John wants us to understand as he tells this. Um, and then in verse 11 he says, this was the first of his signs that Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So, um, Later on in John, we're going to hear about the second sign that Jesus did at Cana. And so I think that there's two ways of thinking about this. One could be that this was the first of his signs, period, that Jesus ever did. Or you could say it was the first of the signs that he did in Cana, because he did at least a couple of signs in Cana, this being the first, and the second one coming chapters later after he'd done some other miraculous things, right? Uh, and we're told that his, his disciples see the sign and they believe in him. And then after that, they go down to Capernaum. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Capernaum because this is a I haven't found any big major significance here yet to this statement, uh, but I will point out that although it says they went down to Capernaum, in our minds we think Capernaum is then to the south, but the reality is Capernaum is to the north. Because in Israel, uh, Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God, is up. It's always up. You go up to Jerusalem, and when you're going down, it means you're moving away from Jerusalem. And so they're, they're already to the north of Jerusalem, and so when they go down to Capernaum, that means they're going away from Jerusalem, so they're actually going in a northward uh, direction. Okay, so uh, not really too significant um, to think of, but there are other places in the Bible where this might cause some things to click together. So, for instance, uh, some of the psalms are called psalms of ascent, and those are psalms that you would sing uh, as you went up towards Jerusalem. And no matter where you were in Israel, whether you were south of Jerusalem, uh, going north to Jerusalem, you were going up. And if you were in the north of Jerusalem, heading south to Jerusalem, then you would still say you were going up to Jerusalem. So there's some other uh, talk about going up and down in the Bible. But now you know, uh, down is away from Jerusalem and up is towards Jerusalem. So now let's turn back and let's consider this idea of signs. And I've highlighted it here uh, because a sign is uh, sometimes that that term is connected in the in the other Gospels uh, with this idea of wonders, signs and wonders, impressive things. Uh, but when John uses the word signs, what he's indicating is that this, whatever Jesus did, points at something greater. It is a it is a it is a signpost. It is an indicator of something else going on. And so uh, John tells us that there are. He basically mentions seven or eight, depending on how you count them, signs that Jesus did that all indicate things about himself. So we're going to see those as we study uh, John and one of these signs we've just seen, which is the turning of water into wine. And so what is the question then is, what is the deeper indication here? And there's a couple theories. 
Okay, one of the things is that you know that we're told that there were these uh, stone water jars there that were for the Jewish rites of purification. So these were uh, in the Old Testament covenant, right? You you had animal sacrifice and you washed yourself with water to be pure. And so one of the theories about the sign, the significance here, says that these stone jars that are that were told that they were a part of the Old Testament law, the purification system, right, that they represent the Old Covenant, the Mosaic law that defined how you were to be made pure, and that uh, the water then filling up the stone jar to the brim was a, was a signifier that the, the Old Testament uh, sacrificial system and law, that it would be completely fulfilled there wouldn't be anything lacking, but it would be all the way filled up. And then when that water becomes wine, right, that it would that it would show that we're now out of the old covenant time and we're into the new covenant time, that the the washing of this old water has been replaced uh, by the wine of the new covenant. Now there's some perhaps issues with that. Jesus did talk about the wine of the new covenant, but he said that you should put it in new wineskins and not old wineskins because it wouldn't fit in the old wineskins. So that maybe uh, counteracts that theory. Um, but generally speaking, this is a fairly uh, consistent way for people to, <coughs> excuse me, to say this is to, to look at it and say, Jesus took the Old Testament, he fulfilled it, and then he turned it into something uh, new. Uh, sometimes people will look at this and they'll say, well, the, the one of the big points is that Jesus brings the better wine. So we have what humans do, which is limited, and then we have what God does when God makes wine. He, he makes the perfect wine, that Jesus is the, the better fulfillment of what came before. Um, that's possible as well. Uh, I look at this, and I can't help but think of a few um, of a few connections here. So, in in John's Gospel, when Jesus talks about water, he is often talking about the Holy Spirit. Okay, uh, it's just the way it is. Uh, Jesus talks about the Holy Spirit, and he says it's it's water, and um, and then, when we talk about uh, Jesus himself, Jesus is described as flesh and blood. And so, you, when, you, when you think ahead to the Last Supper, you have Jesus saying, this is my body, right, it's a bread, and this is the new covenant in my blood, which is signified by wine. Um, and so, I look at this, and because I was reading in my Greek a little bit, let's see if I can... Uh, find it here, uh, we're told that when they take the water and they give it to the person, um, the, the way it's described is water become wine. So they took the water which had become wine. Um, and you'll know that in chapter 1, we saw this distinction between things which were and things which became. And we talked about how the word, which was, that the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And now we're told that we had a water which has become wine. 
and it might be, this is my speculation, I didn't get this from anywhere <laughs> as, as I was reading and meditating on this, it might, there might be some significance in here in this understanding that that which was spirit before, because Jesus did not have a body prior to the incarnation, prior to his birth, right? That what was existent as spirit before now has become flesh. That which was spirit now become flesh. And so that which is offered then in uh, as a way of saving this groom and his family from shame, uh, from perhaps even public shunning, from guilt, from liability, that which delivered him was this wine, this provision of wine, which was spirit become flesh. So we, <laughs> this is this is speculation, though. Okay, don't <laughs> don't go write a book on this or whatever. Um, but I look at this and I wonder what's what's at stake here in the in the way of good conflict is that you have a you have a a dilemma, you have a tragedy that's about to unfold, and Jesus steps in as the Savior. And the way that Jesus does this is by taking that which wasn't, that which was just water, which you couldn't have served to your guests, and he turned it into wine, which you could then serve to his guests. And so uh, the means of salvation was something spirit that became flesh and then brought deliverance to this man. So you might look at it in that way. Now, you also could look at it in a different way, okay? So, uh, again, what you have is this man who has this sort of uh, tragedy unfolding, and then Jesus has compassion on him uh, and delivers him by, by preparing out of nothing. Uh, he prepares some, uh, some wine for him. And so, if, if, you, if you think back to... I don't know, I'm going to have to go find it here... Um, in Isaiah 55, we, we read this. It says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, right? Come to the water. <laughs> and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. And so you have this, this invitation to come to the waters and to find wine without price. And we know, of course, that Jesus didn't go and buy wine uh, and save this guy. He provided wine without price and uh, because those who thirsted came to, came to these waters. Um, so you could look at it that way and you could say, here is a sign. Here is Jesus saying, I am the fulfillment of of what was foretold in the prophet Isaiah, which we're going to see more indicators of that, of course. Um, and, and Jesus directly referred to himself as fulfilling the prophet Isaiah. And so this could be a tie. It could be a reference to that. And so there's a sign there. There is some indicator of something deeper going on. Um, now, you, what... what um, what you probably shouldn't do is you probably shouldn't assume that although this is a sign that it was intended. And, and here's where I think uh, 
sometimes we run into problems, right? Because we want to make this big grand statement of fact, this is just the way things are. And so uh, the cessationist argument often says like, well, the reason that God gave signs and wonders, that he gave miracles, was just to prove to people uh, that they should listen to the person delivering a certain message. And so it was, you know, God just underlining that this is reliable teaching. But when we look at the story of, of water into wine, what we recognize is that Jesus flat out said, this isn't part of the plan, right? So when, when his mom said, hey, Jesus, we got this problem. Uh, what are you going to do about it? He looks at her and he says, this isn't my deal. This isn't for me to worry about. This isn't for you to worry about. And she persisted. She tells the servants to do whatever he says. And so then he steps in and he does this. And Jesus has just said, this is not my hour. This was not designed for me. And yet he then proceeds. And so we have the question, why do we do that? Well, number one, I think it's because his mom asked him to. And we're commanded to honor our fathers and mothers. And so Jesus couldn't dishonor his mom by refusing her request. And so he responds, number one, to fulfill righteousness out of obedience to her. And number two, he, he does it just because she asks. Um, and so uh, Jesus intervenes. The power of God goes to work and delivers a man from a situation that wasn't, and I hesitate to say this, this wasn't part of God's original plan. Like it wasn't, it wasn't the timeline that Jesus had laid out before him. Uh, and so this, this, as we read it, I would say you look at it and you say, this is a good encouragement to pray. Um, you might be tempted to fall into this sort of fatalism of like, oh, what's going to happen is going to happen. But what happened in Jesus' life is that he wasn't going to step in and do something until his mom asked him to, and then he went and did it. Uh, and so Jesus is perfectly honoring to his mother, but we're, we're told in Scripture to pray, and we're told that God hears our prayers and that he answers our prayers. And, and we shouldn't just say, like, well, that's not God's will, so he won't do it. Because sometimes it's like there is the things God has lined up, there is his will, and then when people, when people intercede, when they come and they, and they beseech him and they beg him, he often answers uh, their prayers. And so this could be, in some ways, this could be a sign of the fact that the Messiah, the one who God has sent to rule over all of Israel, is still honoring of his mother and serving of other people. Uh, he doesn't just say, sorry, not my deal. I'm not going to touch it. And so when in verse 11, John says this, the first of his signs Jesus did at Cana and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him, he's saying that Jesus has shown his glory. Now, I've heard a lot of theologians argue and, and discuss and make these big grand statements of what the glory of Jesus is, what it refers to. What it doesn't refer to is blinding light, right? Because Jesus showed his glory here. And there was no blinding light. Uh, it, it doesn't refer to angelic beings falling on their faces before him because Jesus does this miracle and there's no angelic beings falling before him. And so while those might be sort of also indicators of the glory of Jesus Christ, those types of things are not required to say this is the glory of Jesus Christ. What was on display here? Jesus was glorified. He got the attention. Uh, his authority was on display. He did something that normal people, 
uh, just don't do, showing God's favor and God's work in him. And, uh, and so one of the, the big ideas about Jesus is that he is exalted and he is entrusted with the authority and the power of God um, as the Messiah, as the Holy Spirit has now rested upon him, and that has been seen by his disciples. And now when you see that it says that because Jesus did this, that his disciples believed in him, your question is like, okay, well, what does that mean? And again, I'll point out, like, at the at the end of chapter 1, we're told that Nathaniel already believed in Jesus. And now we're told that he believed in Jesus because he saw the glory. And you're like, well, what is that? And we're going to be told throughout Scripture that, that Jesus said to things to him, uh, to the disciples, that they didn't understand. And then later they saw them played out. And then they believed, we're told, and then they believed. And so the question is, is belief just this one, like, monolithic idea, like, to believe means to know and understand and trust every single thing there is to be known and understood and trusted? And I don't think the answer to that is yes. I, th I think the answer is that belief entails receiving and accepting whatever God has revealed to you, be it big or small. And just because we believed this doesn't mean there's nothing more to be believed in the future. And just because we don't believe this doesn't mean that we're not believers if we haven't been revealed that, right? So, so I, you know, you, you get, as you grow in your faith, you see things, you learn things, you understand things, and pretty soon you're, you know, you're believing all these hundreds of things that are revealed to you in Scripture. And then you think, oh, to be a believer means to believe all of these 100 things, when the reality is for a brand new Christian who has just met Jesus Christ as the Son of God, as the one through whom we have access to the Father, for them to believe that one simple fact without any nuance or detail, is to believe in Jesus Christ. It is to be a believer. And so you don't say like, oh, well, you're not a believer yet until you can affirm all of these doctrines. You say, as God reveals himself to you, and you receive that, and you acknowledge that, and you trust that, you are now a believer. So these disciples... They, they aren't, when Jesus tells them he's going to die and, and rise again, they don't understand it. They don't believe it uh, in those terms until after it happens, and then they believe. Right now, though, John says they're already believers in him. What they've seen, they have received. What they have believed. Okay? So don't get discouraged if there's a lot of things that you don't understand, nor should we as Christians look down at others for not believing and understanding all the things we believe and understand, because the real question is, with what they have been given, how have they received that? And when these disciples see Jesus acting as God's deliverer, they believe in him as the Messiah. So you kind of see what's going on here. We have this we have this weird encounter where Jesus does something out of the official right time. He says, it's not my time, but he does it anyway, where he answers prayers, where he, uh, according to the, with the miraculous power of God at work in him, uh, turns water into wine, signifying some sort of change depending on how far we press this metaphor, like of old covenant and new, what we know is that God transforms, and he has transformed water into wine. He hasn't done a poor job of it. He's done a perfect job of it. Um, 
And so when we look at this, we can see many, many things that are starting to come into focus about Jesus. We don't know all of them yet, nor do we need to, but for this little part, we see that when Jesus does this, when Jesus honors his mother and saves a man from public shame and does so according to the power of God, that that is an indicator of the glory of Jesus Christ that is something about him that is worth praising. Okay? And so that's what we have going on here. He's with his mom. He's with some of his disciples. And they're, they're going to go down to Capernaum. And I think what we're going to find in the remainder of this chapter is that there might yet be a connection still to be made uh, with what comes after this. So as you read John 2, wonder and marvel at the love and respect Jesus shows to his mom, to this person at the wedding he's at, and that he does this not according to human strength or wisdom or ingenuity, but according to the power of God at work with it. God bless you. We'll see you back here in John again next week. Mm -hmm.